0: The Paceline is supported by LAL Cycling. The Coast is calling. LAL shore collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. And the Paceline is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now, on to the show. Hello, Paceliners, Michael Hotton here, AKA Hottie, how are you doing? I am in my kitchen, chopping vegetables, and making a classic French dish. The Tour de France is still on, although by the time you hear this show, it will be over, so congratulations to whoever won this thing. I am making a dish I love to make uh, during the tour. I'm gonna to start by, Putting in my onions. Here are the clues to what I'm making. I've got onions, garlic, summer squash, bell pepper, tomatoes, olive oil. Did I say garlic? Lots of garlic. So while you listen to the show, see if you can figure out what I'm making. And at the end of the show, I'll tell you what it was. Enjoy the pace line, everyone. Oh, The well, the podcast on two wheels. Hello, everyone. Welcome to show 76. And the fact that you're hearing me lead off this show, Michael Houghton, means only one thing, that we are missing one of us, and that would be uh, Fatty this time around. Yeah, fatty, I'm here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and you are here. Uh, that voice would be Patrick Brady of Red Kite Prayer, uh, the publisher, the president the chief sponsor of the pace line. The reason why uh, it exists, you allow it to reside on your pages. Awfully allow? Kind of you.
1: allow? I'm like, oh, no, I'm sure. psyched. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that we do this. We're, yeah, I know we're all psyched. Um, talking bikes. I mean, what could be better, right? Uh, the pace line again, could be found on red kite prayer. could be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google music, uh, tune in radio. Uh, just Google it. You know, hopefully you'll find it some way, one way or another. Uh, Uh, maybe attack one of your friends who has an ipod and just grab whatever episodes he has off him we're for that too so and we're using
1: attack in a very euphemistic hyperbolic Mm, sort of way
0: yeah (laughs) um and then if you do find us anywhere on those uh various sources please rate us it it helps quite a bit the folks are you know actual real folks people that matter people that can help support this podcast are finding out about it and that means we can do more episodes we're up to Episode 76, we're trying to make it to 100 and then just kind of see uh, see what happens from there. And I think, Patrick, this is, let's see, uh, the show, the Pace Line's been ex- in existence, this is 2017, since the beginning of 2016. So this is our second Tour de France for the Pace Line. So yep. pretty cool. Um, and uh, once again, though, like in the first go-around for the Pace Line and the tour, the second has seen... Team Sky, again, at the front of the race uh, with the yellow jersey. Um, And uh, this is starting to become a bit of a routine back to, you know, even before Chris Froome was starting to win the yellow jersey, Team Team Sky was starting to stomp its uh, dominance over this race. Uh, You have recently, of course, written about uh, Sky's, obviously, uh, you know, frequency, dominance, their frequency at the, the front of this race, and have some questions about it.
1: Well, I'm, I mean, I've got a beating heart and a brain, so I'm not really all that much different from most people who are busy watching this race in that I've got questions, you know. And as I wrote today in the Friday group ride, which I took on because Robots on Vacation, you know, you, I don't know why our colleagues bother to ask cyclists if they are doping or not. There's only one answer to that question. No. No. And there's a 50% chance that it's true. I, you know, so it's a, to me, it's a pointless exercise or it's an exercise in futility, you know, take your pick. But they're not, if they are doping, there's no way they're ever going to just suddenly admit it to you. Oh yeah. But you know, <laughs> I, I was just like Lance. I've been on EPO for the last eight years, you know, that's not going to happen. And so we should dispense with, uh, are you a clean cyclist or not? And simply go to reporting what we see. And part of the problem here is that Sir David Brailsford, director of Team Sky, decided that one of the cycling news journalists was an enemy and didn't permit him to sit in on a press conference with Chris Froome earlier this week. Just banished him from the press conference. And aside from parallels to a certain political regime currently in progress, that took on overtones of how the U.S. Postal Service team did business. You know, they would they would blackball certain journalists and not permit them to be in press conferences to interview their writers and... We all know that Johan Brunil, director of that team, is currently serving a 10-year ban for his role in the mess that the USPS program was. And, you know, when you look at the denials that Chris Froome gives journalists, and to be fair, he's entirely more engaging and personable and friendly than Lance Armstrong was the fact is those denials that he gives read just like Lance Armstrong's you know when you factor the voice out and just look at the words on the page he sounds just like Lance he's just way more friendly about it hmm. and so when you see Sky get to the bottom of the final climb on a given stage and they've got Three guys, maybe four guys in white jerseys there in front of Chris Froome sitting in yellow. And five or eight K later, you've got two white jerseys left, Chris Froome, and then all the other GC hopefuls who have been completely isolated from the rest of their teams. Come on, something's rotten in Denmark and the Netherlands and Belgium and France and I could go on. Mm. So that's the problem I have, you know, and that's, that's at the root of my lingering discomfort with the tour, you know, certainly cycling's cleaner than it has been at any point in its past, but to think that cycling is clean, that no one is doping is just naive to the point of looking for Bigfoot and unicorns.
0: It was uh, at some point during the race, I forget which stage it was, Froome was climbing in the yellow jersey, and the French fans were booing him. And yeah, Phil Liggett, who we're going to talk about in a bit, was, said, I don't know why they would boo the yellow jersey. Well, I don't think they were booing the yellow jersey, nor were they booing Chris Froome in particular, or maybe they were. I think they were booing Team Sky at that point because they've read and heard some of the same stuff and same with some of the same double talk that you're speaking of here, Patrick, and they don't like it. And they don't like the idea that possibly someone else is bending or getting around the rules to, to lead their their sacred tour. Now, that said, this tour is has been very tight, it's very close. Uh, if someone's doping, shouldn't they just be running away with this thing?
1: Well, my point is that you've got so many guys who are, B players within a team, domestiques, who are climbing just as well as the likes of Fabio Aru or Rigoberto Aran. If you're a domestique and you can attack Rigoberto Aran, what the hell is going on there? That, that's not normal, you know? That simply isn't the way things have traditionally worked. You don't see guys that strong. And that's, you know, that illustrates my point pretty perfectly. Admittedly, Froome is the most vulnerable he's been since he started winning the Tour. And that has certainly made this a much more thrilling race to watch than the last two years were. That's for sure. And, you know, it's even conceivable that Iran could topple him in tomorrow's time trial conceivable. He has beat Froome in other time trials. But it's a little bit like, you know, you know, it's the difference between beating, you know, the Wenatchee Winers as opposed to the New York Yankees. You know, the you know, double-A ball is not the same thing as the World Series. And so, I, you know, I'm not really holding my breath for Iran, but it's been nice to see Such a tight race. Mm -hmm.
0: Specifically, Sky has the three M's Mikel Landa, Nieve, and Kwiatkowski. Uh, And those three guys, uh, in their own right, could probably each lead a team. And then the question is could they lead a team? And are they clean? And is the whole team clean? Rumors have been chasing Sky now throughout 2017. Uh, about again it's the same stuff it's the mysterious guy or mysterious package and where did this what was this product that that showed up and um so they're going to get dogged by this stuff until uh, either they can prove it
1: wrong or someone comes clean well Uh, in the moment you lie to journalists and say oh it was for this reason we were delivering this to this writer and then that writer says wait what what um i was in a different country that day i was about 600 miles away That really doesn't serve them well. So it's like, then we have to ask, okay, if you're not willing to tell us the truth, why aren't you willing to tell us the truth?
0: Well, while we're on the Brits and giving them a hard time, um, the announce crew, uh, I think for the longest time, we have all been listening to the voice of Phil Liggett, uh, along with Paul Sherwin. um, The... Arguably the voice of cycling, Phil Liggett, he has uh, carried our Tour de France's and other races from from a broadcast level for a very long time. And uh, not even so much recently, but over the last several years, there have been a number of calls that uh, said, look, it's time for Phil to step down. He is uh, missing mispronouncing names and missing racers and missing attacks and moves Um even been called into question for his relationship and his backing of Lance Armstrong, and um, I think it's become even more apparent now. I mean, I've you know it's not going to notice on my part. I see him miss calls all the time. Um, Australian TV went so far as to reduce the amount of time they would take from Phil and Paul. What they do in Australia is they run a you know they run the whole stage generally. And so they're supplementing, or they're not even supplementing, they are mostly going with homegrown broadcasters there, uh, Robbie McEwen, one of the notables, and taking very little of Phil and Paul. Yes, they are being heard and seen on Australia, but they've cut their time way back and instead are using their own announce crew with the French feed to do their own work. Um, Because, frankly, they've had enough with the mistakes and so forth. But... The question is, you know, what if Patrick, if you were running NBC Universal or or you were the boss of this broadcast, what would you do about Phil and Paul or Phil specifically, if anything?
1: Um, I'd phase Phil to get out. Period. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you, it's one thing if you mix up riders on a team because you can't see the number on their jersey because they're being shot from the front. And, you know, maybe they're partially obscured by another writer. That sort of mistake is entirely forgivable. But when you mix up teams and announce a team that's not even in the tour, I just, no, that's that's just not even professional work. Mm-hmm. You know, if, I mean, as a publisher, if somebody wants to write for me and they're struggling with subject-verb agreement, I pass. That's kind of a minimum bar of competency that I require for my publication. As a broadcaster, I would want you to be at least pretty close on who you're saying is in the picture. And if you tell me that it's a Castorama writer and Castorama hasn't been a team for more than 10 years, it's time for the pasture.
0: Yeah. Um, Sports has, um, you know, has in general a long... Uh, Relationship with its broadcasters. Uh, Harry Carey with the Chicago Cubs uh, spent years in in the booth, even though he clearly... He could hardly see. His glasses were so thick. But, you know, the fans, they loved them. They were dear. Vince Scully uh, could still be in the broadcast booth for the Dodgers if he wanted to be. Yep. Uh, And and no one really... uh, pointed out much with Vin, but Vin was starting to, I saw him and heard Vin make a few errors here and there. Now Vin was so well-prepared and such a great storyteller that it overshadowed any little mistake he may have made about a guy running the base paths or who was at the plate. Right. Uh, who am I bit of on deck? He missed nuances here and there. And again, he was in his eighties and I get it. And that just happens. Um, so sports seems to hold on to its broadcasters a lot longer than, Say, for instance, my end of the business, the news and traffic and information side, we'll kick people out (laughs) as soon as their hair is no longer blonde. You know what I mean?
1: And let me say that, you know, what, what Phil and Paul are doing, you know, calling a live race with, you know, so many different teams and, you know, so many different riders, that's a lot more like live news. And when you look at baseball, I don't want to say that calling baseball is easy, but you are giving you are given materials uh, as preparation that simply don't happen. You'll know the batting lineup. You'll you know you find out if they switch something, but there's a lot of preparatory material that you get that simply doesn't happen, isn't possible in cycling. And on top of that, you're only dealing with two teams, you know, and so it's. You don't struggle with the same elements of competency that you see in cycling. And so in cycling, you simply have to be sharper. You've got to exercise a greater degree of accurate perception.
0: Yeah, and one more thing on that point, Patrick, is that in in those sports you mentioned, plus soccer or swimming or tennis, uh, those sports are happening right in front of you. And with cycling, you're sitting in a little booth, probably at the finish line, maybe in a studio somewhere, not even in the same country. Yep. You're following monitors. You don't have control of the feed. So you're trying to look at a small screen and identify people. So it's not easy. There's no doubt about that. Now, Phil has been in the sport a very long time. So I think we have raised expectations of him. Um, and at one point, he was fabulous, right? I mean, there was no doubt he was the greatest oh, I've, at one I've
1: point. seen him at his best and truly – his work was a marvel and it's partly partly out of respect for the work that he has done that i think okay it's time to go hang out in your diamond mine in africa the one you share with uh paul and lance armstrong yeah (laughs) um you know he's he's done his hard work his career is made and continuing to call races now and get it wrong only dulls the luster on the work that he has done. Look, I've been in the room and I've seen him do a promotion for someone where they held up a jersey and did a little, you know, talk about this charity and what they do. And the two of them nailed it on the first take after talking with the representative from the charity for five minutes. Mm -hmm. Those guys know what to do. And they're absolutely ace at what they do when... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, when they're sharp, when they're fully awake. I don't have as many problems with Paul Sherwin at this point. But the inaccuracy of what Phil has been doing, I think really, uh, it undercuts a lot of the great work that he's done over the years. And I, I yeah. really kind of hate to see that. You know, he a lot of people don't even know all the time that he's spent as uh, a journalist in uh, for print. And he's a very fine writer as well. Uh, there was an editorial I read of his on Eddie Merck's years and years ago that was just a thing of beauty. And so I, you know, my criticism now isn't out of respect for him. I have the utmost respect for what he has done. And also, you know, to one other nod to his due this guy was was very very fast in the nineteen sixties and almost turned pro and decided to go into journalism instead. So this guy, you know, knows what it means to be fast on a bike in a very first hand way.
0: Yep. So the I mean the question is, has he earned um, tenure a place to to say when it's time? Does he have Does he have that Vin Scully card where he can say, look? I'm going to say when it's time for me to go and should we just wait for him to do that? Or should a manager or somebody close to him step in and say, hey, dude, you know, maybe it's time you're starting to make a lot of mistakes. Maybe it's time you hang it up or play a lesser role or, you know, do something, you know, a little more senior and less of the day-to-day stuff. And if that day comes, of course, the next thing is, well, what do you do? Who do you, who are we bring in? Who's? Who's the next Phil? Is there a next Phil? Is there a next person who can call this sport and and identify with the American audience, which is what, what Phil has been able to do, too, pretty well. I mean, he's a Brit, and he's, you know, but he. I think people here really have latched on to him. They, they know his call. They, they know all the phrases. It's the voice you hear in your head as you're attacking your buddies. I mean, who do you hear? You hear Phil. That's what you hear, right? Yep. But where's that? Where's the next guy? Who is that? Do you, you, Patrick, do you have, I have one. Do you have a, do you have a pick?
1: Well, all they they need to do is promote Bob Roll and Christian Vandeville. Christian has turned out to be really stellar in his role as an announcer. You know, he's no writer, you know, so I don't, I don't know how he's managed to be so good this way, but those two guys, you know, to be fair to Phil, yeah, you could put him into some sort of color role or. You know, the the elder statesman who talks about, you know, how things used to be or whatever. But taking him out of the moment-to-moment call of the race, that's the right thing to do for people who are watching the race and trying to find out what is actually going on. Mm -hmm. And they have, you know, good, solid guys who can step into that role. They're both underutilized at this point. Making them just color commentators is a disservice to what they know about the racing.
0: I think Christian has made great strides here. And I like actually what they've done with this show this year. They've engaged Christian and Bob Moore in the play-by-play broadcast, and they have allowed those guys to jump in and challenge Phil and Paul. And I think that needed to happen a long time ago. I think Paul gets away with a little too much analysis. So it goes unchallenged. And <laughs> Phil needs to be checked off once in a while. And the producers have done a great job of bringing those two, those two players in along with Jens. Uh, Steve Schlanger at the finish line and they've got the guy on the moto as well which usually works so they've got some nice tools and they've done some nice things to mix it up a little bit absolutely Um, but I'd be real careful with Christian in a play-by-play role he's made some great progress the first couple years were just awful he was just struggling to almighty because it was so foreign I think to him to talk and have to you know, think aloud like what you have to do in an analytical sort of. Secret. And I think he's well. I think he's well cast right now as somebody breaking down the race. I don't quite hear him yet as somebody calling the race, which is a different thing. The guy I like um, is somebody who is um, fairly new, actually, to the play-by-play side of things. At least when it comes to cycling, he's been covering the Tour de France and cycling since the early two thousands. But only recently got in the booth and started doing play-by-play. And his name is Ned Bolting. He's another Brit. Uh, currently does a lot of work for ITV. And he has done the Tour of Britain and the Vuelta. And here's a little sample of his work from last year. I've been holding on to this for a while. Last year's Giro the tag. again this is Ned Bolting just
2: 200 meters to go now Moser still on the front does he even know Trentin is there now he does because Trentin opens up a sprint on Trentin surely it's gonna take this win 50 meters to go Bambilla allowed him to do it Moser no chance of responding what a brilliant win from a brilliant rider Matteo Trentin surely one of the most popular winners on domestic duty to Bob Jungels and to this man, Gianluca Brambilla, who has worn the pink leader's jersey, gets his moment of glory in style. Sasha Modelo beaten into fourth place once again. Nikki Hassan bringing up the minor placings now in fifth, and even Rovny, who was undone by a bit of poor technique heading into that final climb, rolls in in sixth place. What a battle that was, and what a great win, Dan, by Matteo Trentini. He's done it on the Tour de France on two occasions. Now the Italian has a Giro stage win.
0: Again, that was uh, Ned Bolting. Most most recently, he's been working with David Miller on on some broadcast projects. Uh, Again, pretty new to the sport as far as at least calling it play-by-play wise. Uh, He's very active, maybe a little loud for some people. Um, Dude is solid.
1: I love his announcing when I get to hear it.
0: Yeah, um, it's rare we get to pick him up. If you get B in sport, you might catch him on a feed. Um, again, does a lot of work for ITV. So he'd be a guy that I, you know, if I was in that role, if I had that executive producer role or whatever, Universal, I would, you know, he'd be somebody I'd definitely want to take a look at. I'd rubber stamp that action. As well as action. some of your in-house guys. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. He really he really stays with the action nice. And again, like Patrick and I said, this is, of all the sports, to do play by play, cycling is offers it's incredibly some of the biggest hard. It, yeah, very hard. You know, very. especially
1: when you're, you know, when you think about you've got 180 moving pieces. Yeah. You know, I, that's that's not something I would ordinarily wish on anyone. You know, it, I mean, and my time as a photographer, you know, I've shot racing, and you know, you see a jersey that you're looking for, and you know, you're you, you need to get a shot of the team leader. And you snap the shutter and you look at the image later, you know, now you don't have to wait for the transparencies to come back and you realize, Oh yeah, that was one of the dumb steaks. Okay. Oops. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, you know, cycling from, from a, a live presentation standpoint is a stunningly difficult sport to produce.
0: Yep. But an amazing one, nonetheless. Oh um, yeah. No
1: question. My favorite. <laughs>
0: Another thing, of course, it is July, and that means um, I am getting ready, and so is Fatty, for that matter, for Leadville. I guess you want to hear a little bit about the, our Leadville preparations right now, Patrick, which is surprising to me, but maybe not. Maybe maybe we still have a chance of convincing you to I'd like some to good news
1: into... on somebody's training since I can't report any.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, I can tell you I am training hard right now, and the best indication of that is... I have a little, um, one of those little nice little cold sores on the side of my mouth, which usually indicates somebody who is pushing their, their body beyond its uh, normal limits. So, yeah. yeah, the training right now is, it, it always is. It focuses on time in the saddle, and the amount of uh, climbing I'm doing. Those are the two big stats I tend to follow. Now this year I've, I've uh, mixed in weightlifting to a greater degree because we did the interview with Jacques DeVore a few shows ago about his cycling-specific power workouts in the gym. So I've replaced one of my hard days, one of my hard weekdays on the bike, which usually involved um, hill intervals, and gone with Jacques' training, his power-based walking lunges to see. uh, And again, uh, Leadville, to me, this is my fifth time around. Fatty's in for uh, his 21st start. At this point, it's just I'm just having fun with it. I've, I've got a gold buckle, and I've been around the course enough to go, okay, I've seen all that. Let's see what other experiments I can try out on this race and see how they work out. And this is one of them. I'm going to see if I can actually reduce my time on the bike and some of the climbing that I would normally do and, and add in some weightlifting and see how that works out.
1: How, um, how many weeks out are we at this point?
0: So it's always the second Saturday in August. Okay. And that the week leading into the race is just a nothing week on the bike. You go out for one-hour rides. You might do some recon. I always like to go look at the power line descent early in the morning so I see how the sun's beaming down on that thing. The top section of it is is pretty rough, and then the lower section's very ruddy. So that's the only thing I really like to see. Otherwise, it's just the course is and you could ride the course without ever seeing it really and do well it doesn't take much a so very short rides. that that week is not much the week before that is usually a a speedier speed week low volume a little but keep the intensity going in fact the the, the two weeks before race week can be that way um and you're trying to squeeze one rest week in there, one final rest week before that, two or three weeks straight leading into the Leadville race date. And so that puts you back about where we are now, which is we're we're finishing up the, the last of our build periods here, which included uh Crusher and the Tusher, which was, I think, a, a good a nice little appetizer for for Leadville. It got you in that long climbing mode, in fact, longer than than Leadville even offers. Um, and it fit in fairly. Fairly well. It's a little close to Leadville, but we, my my training partner and I, figured out a way we could incorporate crusher and still back time our level fit, uh, Leadville fitness properly. So right now it's just a lot of you know long sustained climbs. I think oh uh, yeah, yesterday I went out and did two by twenties, two 20, two minute climbs at race pace effort. You know at that one hour power effort. Um, and then Saturday rides are five to seven hours with anywhere from eight to 10,000 feet of climbing somewhere in there always on the mountain bike um, so you try to just spend a lot of time on that bike you're going to race and ride and test you know equipment testing is It's uh, just about now you like to know okay this is this is my setup this is what I'm going with these are the tires I'm going to run this is the approximate pressure I'm going to run so you get this is the saddle this is my height or my tilt these are my shoes, <laughs> my cleat position. You want all that stuff really settled in by now. A lot of guys make a mistake of walking into the any race, long events, and new pair of shoes or cleat out of position, or and then this throws their whole day off. So try to you try to get that stuff nailed down by now. You know, you, if you're going to do breaks or break bleed or pads, you want it, you want those to be done. So you have time just to wear things in for a couple weeks and, and you know, everything's settled in and ready to go. Not that things can't change up there at 10,000 feet. They certainly can. You can get up there and suddenly the, the workouts you thought you were doing that were going to pan out or the equipment choice you'd made, you get up there. oop, oh, I got, got that one wrong. <laughs> um, and you have to make decisions on the fly, but you try to get you know, you try to get everything settled in will there well, be anything
1: two, three... you're using that's different from what you've used in years past
0: oh yes a big <laughs> thing <laughs> yeah in, in the big thing in the form of a rigid front fork yeah i put an envy uh, mountain front fork on my specialized stump jumper hardtail um, again this is experiment stuff i i've just thought that if somebody really wanted to roll around that that course in a good time one thing you could probably try and do if you've got the bike handling and the, and the upper body strength is to go rigid uh with gears though i'm not going rigid single which fatty has done and see because it's a climbing race ultimately right and that's what you're trying to do is just get uphill fast now the downhills will beat you up even with a suspension fork you'll get Beat up and I will lose time on the downhills. The question is, can I make up or surpass in climbing what I'm going to lose on the downhills? Because I'm going to have to be picking more careful lines. And for instance, the Sugarloaf Descent is one I've learned to bomb and even enjoy. It comes late in the in the race. Um, but that's because I had some give and take on the front end of the bike. And now I think I'm going to have to be much more careful and probably reduce speed as I'm uh, descending back towards the lake and back towards uh, St. Kevin's. So, yeah, a, a rigid front fork is going to be my big, bold move. You know, I've countered that with some higher volume tires, especially on the front at 2.35. I'm going to put up front. Um, and I've gone with a more of endurance type saddle. I've got some semi riser bars on that should, you know, in theory flex a little bit more. So, I've tried to counter some of that rigidity with some forgiveness. But I mean, you take out a hundred mil of travel and you're, you know, you're in for, you're in for a beating, I think. So we'll see how that works out. Um, Yes. I've been doing bench presses and (laughs) wrist curls and all that stuff to try and hopefully uh, survive that, that punishment.
1: Dude. Well, good for you. Congrats. Yeah. yeah, I I mean, I don't want to be at that sort of elevation. And if I did, I'd have suspension probably front and rear as well
0: <laughs> well you know what and you're right patrick and that is the more i do leadville the more i see full suspension bikes because first of all full suspension has become so good just the suspension action itself is so good now right and those bikes have gotten so light mm-hmm. that uh you know more and more of these guys are riding uh full suspension machines and doing just fine and covering it in great time and you God knows you can, when you hit do hit the downhills, you can just rail them on a full suspension bike. I'm going the other way.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine why. I mean- I don't know. Just just recently, I had a chance to go out and do a ride in Annadel on the Scott scale there, hard tail. And I hit some trails that I know very well. And uh, there was one PR I sent, I set somewhere in there. But while I was faster than usual on the climbs- I was so noticeably slower on descents. It was an education to me, kind of a you know proof of concept that I, at least, you know, not going to say this is necessarily true for anyone else, but I know for fact that in mountain biking, I overall am a faster cyclist uh, with suspension.
0: Mm-hmm. I I have enjoyed riding the rigid uh, by uh, the first one I got on, and I think in the end, if I keep a setup like this the one thing i would actually get rid of is the frame set because while it makes for a very light bike and it is it is cross bike light right now in fact when i raced it at a crusher i'd put a set of very light specialized renegades on it for tires because you just don't need much tire up there they were sub 2.0 tires and the bike when i i didn't weigh it but i know it was i mean it had to weigh no more than my cross bike um so it was super light but that said the bounce effect is a bit much. And I think if I were to ride like this permanently or keep a bike like this permanently, I would certainly go with actually a heavier bike. Just, you know, at that point, you're not racing. You're just riding to have fun. And I think more enjoyment, if you like picking your lines, if you like being challenged that way, a titanium frame or steel frame is going to at least give you a little more heft underneath you. You're not going to bounce around as much you able to track a little bit better. I wrote a cello frame, you know, cello, the Chris King guys, mm-hmm. with a rigid fork on it, and had a great time. Yeah, I didn't climb as fast as I'm climbing now, but the ride quality certainly was better, especially considering that that rigid front end. So that'll be my Leadville setup. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna punish myself with rigidity, with firmness. Wow. Uh, All right. Okay. Hey, coming up, um, some interesting news about getting and going arrow. And how to entice kids to ride? How about by making it free and easy? That's next on The Pace Line.
2: Still all to play for. Still no idea who's going to win this stage into Pinarolo. Stage 18 has produced a brilliant race. Brambilla on the wheel of Moza. Moza doing the work for the slighter, smaller Italian from etix Quick Step. Under one kilometer they go. And now they will start to play... Cars.
1: We've been talking about Health IQ and how they are helping people to source better rates on life insurance. Recently, they updated their site with new insurers and the ability to serve more people. They've got special rates for cyclists, of course, and runners, and triathletes, but also vegans and other health-conscious people now. We've mentioned they have quizzes, and these aren't just for fun. If you score elite on a quiz for a specific lifestyle, that can earn you a further discount on your life insurance. They've also replaced BMI with waist-to-hip ratio, which is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease when it comes to athletes. Additionally, they replaced the LDL-to-HDL ratio with triglyceride-to-HDL ratio for people on low-carb or paleo diets, because that's a better predictor of cholesterol health. Amazingly, they will not take into account one incidence in a family history if you are otherwise healthy. It's like a get out of jail card. In other words, if one person in your family has had cancer or diabetes, they won't ding you for it. Finally, they can also get better rates for those with runner's heart or hypertension. Check them out at healthiq.com.
0: the paceline the podcast on two wheels Uh, thanks for being here we are without fatty this week but patrick brady is here and i am michael houghton so glad you found our show we're headed off of course into our news and notes section and patrick we start this week with uh intel corp intel of course the folks many of you know this company because they are inside your computer, And they had at least, what, dipped their toe into cycling in a unique way.
1: Yeah, they had purchased uh, a wearables company called Recon Jet. They were doing a heads-up display in glasses. The unit that did the heads-up was mounted on the right lens down low. So very different from what every site who we covered a couple weeks ago, which I saw at uh, press camp, Uh, they put theirs, you know, above in the frame of the glasses. This was actually on the lens down, low, and right. And this was, uh, Recon Jet was the very first heads-up display to actually make it to market. And there was a lot of money in this outfit. They'd got a Series A round of funding that was $10 million. Uh, Later on, Motorola, which has a separate division that invests in startups and, uh, uh, you know, kind of promising technology stuff that they want to see advanced, but they don't necessarily want to own themselves. Motors Motorola solutions put in 7 million and then Intel came along, gave them 4 million. And like a year later bought them outright. I don't even know what they paid for the company in total, And now, very quietly, Intel announced that they're leaving the wearables market. They didn't really say much other than, oh, we're leaving the wearables market. But the clear implication is, oh, they're shutting down ReconJet." They won't even respond about this. They're not talking about, yeah, this cool little gizmo is no more. And yeah, it's just done. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of a sad thing to see something like that get buried. But, you know, that's, that's the world of tech. It's gone.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah. So any idea what's going to happen with Recon Jet? I mean, what were they before Intel came along?
1: They were, all those guys were working for other companies, you know, and so oh, okay. they're now unemployed and looking for work elsewhere. I mean, maybe some of them will get retained, you know, developers will get retained within Intel, but I suspect uh, they're all contacting the Depart- uh, California Department of uh, Employment and Training.
0: Hmm. Okay. Uh, More uh, interesting technology, and that comes from Garmin. Um, They are getting into aero analysis and testing.
1: So a few months ago, I heard about this company called Alpha Mantis that was doing aerodynamic testing without the wind tunnel. So without like going and renting hours at the San Diego Low Speed Wind Tunnel or any other facility... These guys were figuring out how to do aero analysis out in the real world. I read about it. I still don't understand it. But the real story here is that Garmin decided, oh, that's pretty cool. That's cool enough that we should own it and bought them. And the reliability of Garmin GPS units notwithstanding, you know, Garmin purchased Backtracker. And that became the Garmin Varia, which is a bike radar, you know, lets you know if something's getting too close to you. Uh That's a real product on the market. And then they bought Metra Gear, which was a uh, power meter that was based in pedals so that you could easily switch it from one bike to another. Certainly more so than, you know, a power meter and a crank. And that's now the Garmin Vector. So Garmin has a great uh, track record so far of purchasing technology and then doing whatever they need to, to beef it up and make sure that, you know, production is there and reliability is there and they get this thing to market. So whatever product they see Alpha Mantis as being able to provide, that's going to become another Garmin product. I'd say pretty much guaranteed. I have a high degree of faith that Garmin was going to produce something that consumers will be able to buy as a result of this purchase. I just hope that whatever it is, it's more reliable than their GPS units. Yeah, the aero
0: idea reminds me a bit of something I saw and covered at Interbike uh, last September. It came from Argonne. Uh, they have an entire bike um, that they were showing as a prototype, it was pla- you couldn't ride the thing; it was just plastic. It was mounted with 30 sensors uh, that picked up and delivered coefficient of drag data to the rider in real time. So the rider, if this bike ever came to market, could actually make adjustments on the fly based on how aero the rider was or what the bike was doing. They could make adjustments to the bike. They could go out and ride, do test rides check out wheel sets or tires or different style of bars to see if there are more or less arrow. use data in real time and make the adjustments. So uh, that bike is a long ways from coming to market, but Argon had a lot of confidence in the bike itself and maybe even a kit where you can mount a, a kit with these sensors on an existing bike and then deliver data to a head unit, including a, a Garmin, speaking of Garmin, they said, yeah, you could, you could create a window in a, in a Garmin unit, it said CAD coefficient or COD coefficient of drag. And the writer could read that in real time. So aero analysis and aero is still a thing. Um, you know, not everyone thinks they, they need or want an aero bike, but I, I mean, go, let's go back to the tour. I mean, Patrick, the, the guys, my wife keeps asking me, why are those guys wearing skin suits? Why? Because <laughs> the thing that you can do to make yourself faster, the one thing is not wheels, or, or tires, or it's you. And if you can make yourself faster via aero, it's the easiest thing you can do, is put on some a tighter skin suit or jersey or what have you, and that was one of the cheapest and easy ways to get fast. And I think that the tech companies are, are recognizing that aero continues to be the area where they can push the limit, because everything else, I mean, the bikes are just getting as light as they, and stiff as they possibly can at this point.
1: Yeah. You know, a couple of years ago, I went to Specialized and went in their wind tunnel, And did some testing. And what I found was that when you go from, you know, an older style fit of jersey, you know, a looser jersey and hairy legs and just basic bib shorts to an arrow kit and shaved legs, it's basically the same arrow advantage, if I recall correctly, uh, as going to an arrow helmet and arrow wheels. It's a huge gain. And I've had a couple of different product managers tell me, you know, one in particular who's done a lot of wind tunnel time, basically from here on out, if you want to get faster in terms of your equipment, it's not going to be by getting your bike lighter. You know, the difference between a 14-pound bike and a 13-pound bike, you know, and what that will do for your speed is really pretty tiny compared to if you make a solid investment in aerodynamics and really you can do so much with just kit and helmet you know i mean you can get out for under 500 dollars. you know with a great aero helmet and one good really aerodynamic kit and that's as that's you know equal to or superior to buying say a set of zip 404s
0: right totally out uh, speaking of our friends at Specialized, uh, Specialized and uh, Levi's Grand Fondo getting together, aren't they, to try and get uh, some more of the younger set on bikes?
1: Yeah, you know, Specialized takes a lot of heat for their rather aggressive marketing. And, you know, sometimes it's really pretty understandable. They're aggressive with their dealers, they're aggressive in the marketplace, and a lot of people react negatively to that. But they do things in terms of advocacy that I really adore. And this is one of them. So any anybody under the age of 24 who wants to ride Levi's Grand Fondo this year can do so for free. Okay. Specialized will pay the entry fee. Not only that, you can ride a specialized demo bike on the course. So that you know, if your bike is, you know, say an older Peugeot or something, who knows? I've seen kids out there on some pretty old heavy bikes. And, you know, having a, a neat bike uh, for that experience, I could see making that, you know, something really memorable to a relatively new rider. And so, yes, they're trying to get people hooked on cycling, you know, and should they sell another specialized bike as a result? You know, I, I think that's okay. I, mm. I don't think it's providing any harm to anyone, But I love seeing them step up this way and do what they can to try to encourage younger riders uh, to get further into the sport. And and man, what an event for them to do it at.
0: Mm -hmm. And my only request would be this uh, to specialize. They need not go far to find the true need. They're in Morgan Hill. Go down to Salinas. Go down to the fields of Monterey County. Go up to San Jose. You will find kids who can't afford to get into this sport, who need just this kind of help. They're they're teens. They're looking for something to do. They don't know where to go. If you go up to Marin County and start handing out bikes, that's all wrong. Go to the places where these bikes are really needed. Encourage those kids to make the jaunt up to Sonoma County. Offer them a bike. So that would be my only request to specialize. It's a great idea. I love the idea. Um, I guess I'm just asking Mike Sr. Just refine it a little for me and I'll be... I'll be totally on with you. So, but yeah, great idea. And uh, another another reason to support Levi's Grand Fondo, just more good stuff coming out of there. Uh, boy, folks, if you are in the U.S. and you've ever ridden Campy or owned Campy, for that matter, chances are it came via one man. Is that right, Patrick, who's sadly no longer with us?
1: Well, there have been other other sources, but uh, yeah, Othlin uh a prominent importer, uh, he was the owner of, uh, Oxner international. He has just passed away. This man was a giant within the bike industry. Um, his, his father had started the company and had been a pro in Switzerland, as I understand it. Um, I've certainly seen some, some photos of him and, uh, Othon went into the family business and, you know, grew it substantially. So they were one of the sources for many years for Campagnolo parts. They were also uh, the original distributor of Osos here in the U.S. There were any number of European lines that they were the exclusive source for, unless you were going gray market, of course. But they they were... um, Based in Chicago and had a really stellar crew, and many of their employees have gone on to some great things. So, Brad Mena, who manages uh, the road product line for SRAM, he's, he did a stint uh, working at Oxner. And, you know, yeah, a lot of people have done time there and gone on to other things in the industry. And Othon was a larger than life character. And really cared about what he did, really cared about the brands that he represented, and was known as somebody who, you know, ultimately a real softy, but uh, could be, shall we say, rather forceful. Um, (laughs) And all right, I, uh, way, way back in uh, 1997, I reviewed a pair of Asos bibs and it was a positive review. I said nice things, but I didn't say as many nice things as Othon thought I could have said. (laughs) And I ended up with a new body cavity afterward. And it was just one of those things afterwards. I I called my buddy Rudy and I was like, what just happened? He's like, you know, he means well. And that was not the only time that uh, Othon lit into me. But what I learned about him was that, you know, if If he dressed you down for something, it was a sign that he cared. He cared about what you said. He cared about what you thought. He cared about the line that he was carrying. He cared about that product specifically. And he cared about the ultimate opinion that consumers had. And so it was a a pretty great indicator of a man with a big heart. The other thing that Othon's really remembered for is that he wrote his own guides to restaurants. Uh, he had a series of restaurant reviews and, you know, multiple books that he had published. And this was something that you could put up alongside uh, the Michelin Red Guide. And he, he was a serious, serious foodie. On one occasion when I met with them, uh, met with o- Oxner. Uh, at their offices in suburban Chicago, I was taken into a conference room that was, in terms of ultimate capacity, maybe only two-thirds the size it should have been because the walls were lined all the way around with refrigerator-sized Vino Temp wine refrigerators. And, I mean, there was Mouton Rochille and just oh, you know, Latache and all the great French wines that you'd ever want to see. You know, great Italian wines, but like those Grand Cru and Premier Cru French wines that most of us will never, ever have a chance to drink. And you could see verticals in there. This was a man who invested heavily in wine and really cared about food. And so his departure from this world is a it's a pretty sad thing because he he really cared so much hmm. so import, importing bike
0: product was his business but importing food and and fine wine was his
1: pleasure yeah absolutely or, yeah, yeah okay. and you know That's he cool. did all he could it wasn't just that he loved having a good bottle of wine he did all he could to share his perspective with others in terms of creating those guides he he really liked to spread the passion so he was not a selfish man by any stretch
0: well here's othon that's how I pronounce his name right Oth- yes othon yes okay cool name actually here's to i'm um, raising my glass to him right now so let's raise our glass othon oxner thanks map. for thanks for all you did for for us here uh, as cyclists and as fans of the sport um and hopefully othon would like Uh, are my paceline pick paceline picks coming up here now folks paceline picks are pretty simple uh each of us on the show pick something we have seen or observed or like it usually has to do with cycling mine seem to waver away a little bit um but mostly it's bike related stuff and these are just individual picks yeah that (laughs) we uh that we like to go off on so hopefully Othon, hopefully you would love my paceline pick because it does start with a story about food You see, at least once during the Tour de France, and several times during the summer, I make the classic dish of Provence, Ratatouille. The ingredients are simple and fresh. Olive oil, onion, garlic, summer squash, bell pepper, eggplant, tomato, basil, and vinegar. The vegetables are stewed together, and as one should, their flavors are combined in a La Crusette. But of course... I like to finish the dish under the broiler with fresh eggs on top. Serve with crusty baguette to mop up the vegetable juices and runny yolks. My wife and I sit down for supper, watch a stage, screaming at the TV for our favorites with mouthfuls of ratatouille. And this year, our favorites have been on the home team, the French... Don't get me wrong, we are red, white, and blue, just like most of you, and we'd love nothing more than to see an American come along and, without the use of chemicals, ride that yellow jersey to the Champs-Élysées. But until then, we are polling for the French. She likes Warren Barguil, young, good-looking, magical climber, and he is a teammate of her other favorite, the charismatic and ever Facebook Live present, Lawrence Tandam. I have become a Romain Bardet fan. Taller, but not as attractive. More focused on yellow than polka dots. And he rides for a French team, AG2R. And what the hell, I even like those brown shorts. Uh, These two, along with a few others, have given the home team hope. Hope that they can break a long losing streak. It's not quite Chicago Cubs long, but it has been since 1985. Since the home team, the French, has won the Tour de France, Bernard Hinault was the last, and since then, the tour has been dominated by two Americans, a Spaniard, and the Brits. But maybe there's light at the end of this 32-year-long tunnel in the form of Bardet, Barguil, or the 20-year-old phenom, David Gaudu. Are the French fans excited? You bet they are. Thomas Voeckler, the king of TV attacks, is headed for retirement. And now several legitimate French contenders are staking their claim on the race their country created. Ratatouille comes from the word "touiller," meaning to stir up. If nothing else, these young core French riders is stirring things up. But my wife and I are rooting for something bigger, a Frenchman in yellow and a nation's hunger satisfied. All right, Patrick.
1: Pace line picks. Well, earlier this week I posted my Review of the Speedplay Aero cleat, and I've been riding this um, all through the spring and into the summer now. And you know, I've I've been a long time fan of Speedplay pedal Speed play pedals. Say that three times fast. And when I first heard that this cleat was coming out, I was like, Wow, a, a cleat that will be faster and will be easier to walk in in all conditions. You know, since you'd be going through from a metal base plate to something that's covered with uh, something rubbery. And, you know, I finally get it. I put it on some uh, shoes and instantly, you know, yeah, the the walking experience was much nicer, quieter. Um, I felt much more sure-footed and it was just more comfortable to walk in those can I tell the aero advantage? No, but when you start stacking it up with other things, you know, you get on a set of aero wheels, you have an aero helmet on, you have shoes with those cleats, you get on an aero bike. And that, you know, that in aggregate is very noticeably quick. And, you know, I, so I post the review and this morning I went to pick up my car from the shop where it had been getting some work done. And I hop off my bike and walk around to the back of the car to put my bike on the rack. And as I'm walking, I had the most unusual experience of asking myself whether or not I'd been sufficiently upbeat and complimentary of the pedal. Um, that is a most unusual experience with me. You know, I don't normally think, oh, I don't think I was positive enough about this product, but it was one of those things that I've spent the entire rest of the day going, my gosh, I don't think there's been another occasion in history where I've gotten excited about a cleat. And, you know, this is the sort of thing where anybody who's ever been critical uh, or suspicious or uh, doubtful, about speed play pedals this is the occasion to check them out uh i i certainly know there are shops out there that will do demo pedals there aren't a lot of shops that'll do that uh this is one where you know i think you could invest in the in the pedals and i doubt that you would ever uh regret or second guess that purchase but you know this has taken my favorite pedal system and you know, improved on them in a way that I really hadn't been terribly concerned with. And now it's like, my God, why didn't they do this 10 years ago? So it's really something, you know, the cleats are not expensive, but what it does in terms of walkability and then knowing that you're making yourself just a little bit faster with no real effort is something I just love. And Mm -hmm. this is, to me, it's just so par for the course for how, speed play uh ceo richard Bryan thinks so that's my pick
0: yeah and you're if by purchasing speed play you're backing one of the one of the great uh stories and one of the great companies in cycling uh richard is a, a true enthusiast he's a he's actually like a pedal nerd i mean patrick oh, you and yes. i have seen what he has like that pedal museum it's crazy yeah
1: yeah i there's yeah there's never been another person in history who has geeked out on pedals the way Richard has, Yeah, you know, and you know, it's worth noting that he's up against huge multinational corporations and he's done this against just incredibly long odds. You know, you think about look, you know, and you know, the size of look, and then you think about, Oh, well, you know, look, forget, look, what about Shimano? So, uh, he's really accomplished something pretty unlikely.
0: Yeah, he certainly has. Uh, you can check out uh, Patrick's review of those pedals and uh, the cleats as well at Red Kite Prayer. Uh, that is also where you can find the Pace Line. Go to Red Kite Prayer to get links and notes on this podcast and our 75 others. Uh, leave us a comment there too. We love checking those out. Uh, the Pace Line can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, TuneIn Radio are uh, the sources where it can generally be found and subscribed to. Look, we're going to go and try to get Fatty back um, and hopefully we'll see him uh, for our next show. Uh, For now, for Patrick Brady, I am Michael Houghton and thanks for joining us on The Pace Line.